Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Pete, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And we're going to begin a new teaching series this morning that will uh, carry through the next eight or nine weeks, kind of through the spring up until the summer, and uh, picking up essentially where we left off in the story of Jesus last week, if you remember. Sort of a big day for us as Christians on Easter Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Well, that's not the end of the story. And so we're going to pick up an axe and spend uh, nine weeks looking at portraits of Jesus' ongoing work in the world uh, through his church by the power of the Spirit. And so we'll be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. We'll read the first 11 verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And we'll stop there. So, as we begin the book of Acts, as you can see, it's spelled A-C-T-S, not A-X-E. Jarrell, our youth pastor, told me he recently was teaching from the book of Acts to the middle schoolers, and they thought he was talking about cutting down a tree or body spray that frat guys wear or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about acts as in actions. The word acts comes from the Greek word praxis, which is where we get words like practice or practical. And so Acts is a book that describes what it looks like to practice Christianity. Acts is a book that describes what it looks like to practice Christianity, to be practicing Christians. Okay, so that's not a phrase we actually throw around a whole lot. As Protestants, we don't really talk about being practicing Christians. We hear people of other faiths talk about being a practicing Jew or a non-practicing Muslim or something like that. But for Christians, for Protestant Christians, we don't really talk that way. In fact, I have a Jewish friend who says, I'm not really Jewish, I'm just sort of Jew-ish, right? <laughs> and like we know what that means. And uh, we don't really have that distinction as Protestants. And I guess maybe we do at a really, hopefully, what we would all understand to be a shallow level. 
right? So on Friday night, our family had little league opening ceremonies for our six-year-old Mo, first year playing peewee baseball. 650 players and all their families, the Elk Stadium was packed. And they do the little league pledge. So they have four players come out and recite the pledge, which says, I trust God, I love my country, I'm going to play fair and do my best, or something like that. I would say that's not Christian. It's just sort of Christian-ish, right? And I hope we would recognize that as such. And so um, I think we all know that true Christianity isn't just some sort of sentimental, cultural, patriotic, uh, good old boys club or something like that. We know that if the gospel is really true, the good news that God has broken into human history in the person of Jesus, and he's inaugurated this cosmic revolution to make everything new, to reconcile all things back to himself. If that gospel is indeed true, then we know that it would have to not just change what we believe about God and life and ourselves, but it would have to change our praxis. It would have to inform our acts, the way that we actually live. And so in the book of Acts, we have this descriptive narrative about how the first communities of Christ followers practiced their faith in Jesus. These are their acts, their actions. Okay? Gotten a little ahead of myself, so let's pull back for a moment. Traditionally, what's this book entitled? Maybe it says it in your Bible. If it doesn't just say Acts, what does it say? The Acts of the Apostles, okay? And the reason, again, is that this is what the actions of these first communities of Christ followers were, but I actually don't think that traditional title fully captures what's really happening in this story. It's not that it's not true, but look in verse 1 and 2 here. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Okay, so what's going on here? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Okay, so Acts and Luke were really uh, not even prequel, sequel, just kind of one continuous story. So Luke, who was a medical doctor, who was a traveling companion of Paul, one of Christ's early followers, who had a firsthand uh, perspective, for eyewitness account of many of the things in the book of Acts. Before he wrote Acts, he wrote what we call the Gospel of Luke, or the Gospel according to Luke. And so that's his attempt to try to tell the story of Jesus. And he does it kind of as an investigative journalist. In the beginning of Luke, it says that he goes around interviewing eyewitnesses and trying to figure out exactly what it is that Jesus did and taught in his time on earth. And apparently, he's written this book, Luke Acts, to a guy by the name of Theophilus, who we don't know much about. We kind of get hints that maybe he has a place in the Roman government, that he's sort of an authority figure, and he has asked Luke to figure out, hey, what's going on with this Jesus guy and all the people that are following him? And so both Luke and the book of Acts begin with the author identifying himself and his audience, which in this case is just this guy, Theophilus, and saying, here's, here's what I'm writing about, here's why I'm doing it. And so in, one, in verse 1, if you go back to that, 
he starts this book referring back to his former book, which is Luke, and he talks about Luke as being the time when he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the assumption then is that the book of Acts is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach. The book of Luke covers up until the time of Christ's death and resurrection, but that's not the end of Jesus' work and ministry in the world. The book of Acts is a continuation of the story of what Jesus is up to in the world after his resurrection and even after his ascension back to the Father. So what's he saying? That the life and ministry of Jesus did not end when Jesus ascended back to heaven. That was just the beginning. And so to call this book just the Acts of the Apostles, while it's true, actually a better way of talking about it is this is the Acts of Jesus after Easter. And he does those Acts through his church and by the power of the Spirit. It's a very interesting thing, and for some of us, this doesn't seem that crazy. If you're kind of new or skeptical about the Christian faith, this seems like crazy talk, right? That this guy has an ongoing work or ministry in the world after he's departed. In fact, if you've been to Israel, one of the places you can go is on a walk down the road to Emmaus, which we're told in the gospel accounts is a place where Jesus went for a walk with some of his disciples after he died and rose from the dead. And what's interesting is that it's a historical landmark. How many places have historical landmarks for where somebody walked after they died? It's pretty fascinating. So on my desk, when I was there, I grabbed a pile of gravel from the road to Emmaus, and it sits on my desk in my office where I remind myself that Christ is still walking the earth, and he invites me to walk with him. It's a crazy story, okay? And so again, this is the book of Acts, the acts of Jesus, the actions, the ministry, the work of Christ, ongoing past his death, resurrection, and ascension. And he does those works through his church and by the power of his spirit. And so back to where we started if Acts describes what it looks like to practice Christianity, to be practicing Christians, then we don't come to this book simply as a how-to guide. It's not that we simply just kind of follow the leader or imitate and try to do what Jesus did, although there's certainly some of that in the Christian life, but there's actually something way more potent and powerful. It's this, that practicing Christianity means living as the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, joining Jesus on his mission in the world. To practice Christianity includes church, spirit, and mission. To be people who aren't just going to recite a few lines and then throw out the opening pitch, this means something to us. That we are invited to be part of what Jesus is still doing in the world today. And the book of Acts describes in a powerful, exciting, adventurous sort of way how that story first unfolded. And it, from a historical perspective, it's absolutely fascinating. One of the books I bought to help prepare for this series is called 30 Years That Changed the World. 
and it's on the book of Acts, and it covers these three decades and talks about the way this ragtag group of Christ followers started in Jerusalem, and through their practice, being spirit-empowered, living in community, joining Jesus on his mission, the world was radically changed. The gospel of Jesus was announced, and the, pres- the, the kingdom of God was proclaimed and demonstrated for the, the whole known world. And so what we read there in Acts 1.8, where Jesus talks about this promised spirit who will come and indwell and empower his people, and they will become his witnesses, those who have seen him and testify to the good news about him, starting in Jerusalem where they were, and then moving outward to Judea and Samaria, kind of the surrounding areas, and then moving out to the ends of the earth. Now here's what's nuts, is we, as Americans, try to make every story about us. Um... So we read this and go, the ends of the earth, oh, where would that be? Like Zimbabwe or China or something like that. If they were reading this or hearing these words, where would the ends of the earth be? Bend, Oregon. <laughs> it's insane that this little community empowered by the Spirit, joining Jesus on his mission, their work, their message, their ministry actually made it here. So much so that it's normative to say a pledge and throw a pitch and call yourself Christian. Like, uh, this is an insane thing that happened. And so we are the recipients of this work. We are the ones who now, a couple thousand years later, 5,000 miles away from the epicenter, we get to be part of this Jesus movement as well. And so that's kind of um, sort of the framework that we're going to be engaging Um, as we go through the book of Acts over the next eight weeks. Now, if you got this sheet when you came in, grab that real quick, and I want to take a look at it. We have taken, essentially, what Jesus lays out in Acts 1.8 as Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and we've kind of rephrased that for our purposes as at home, in our backyard, and around the world, we are joining Jesus on his mission because Christ is still at work in the world today and he invites us to be part of it. So our Jerusalem is here in Bend. In our backyard is kind of national uh, social issues and around the world is as, as broad as the globe is. That's how we as Antioch are trying to align ourselves to participate in Christ's mission in the world. And what we're trying to do essentially, and when I say we, I mean the staff and elders and those that are leading and equipping the saints here, is trying to empower and encourage and inspire all of us to partner with Christ on his mission in the world in one or more of these spheres. And so you'll get a sheet like this every week for the next two months, and this time it's kind of an overview of some of the mission trips we have, but for the next eight weeks, it's actually going to be the story of somebody here in our church who's joining Jesus on his mission. And sometimes it's in really kind of crazy, radical ways um, around the world. And sometimes it looks like really ordinary, everyday living with Jesus on mission. And so we've got eight stories to share from within this church of how this is actually already happening and how we can learn from each other and encourage each other. And so for today, I would encourage you to take a look at a couple of our learning trips um, that are happening around the world. And again, we, we, we emphasize that this isn't about us. And so we don't go on mission trips to be the heroes. We go on these trips with a humble posture 
as learners and to see what God is doing. He's already at work in all these places. It's not like Jesus shows up when our plane lands. He's already at work, and so we go to learn from him and those that are working with him. And so the two trips I'd call your attention to on the left-hand or right-hand column are the uh, youth immersion trip to uh, Mexico and the Nicaragua trip, both in August. And these are both trips that we feel like are going to be really helpful in helping our congregation get this stuff and live it out as a way of life. And so Jarrell's leading a trip to Mexico that uh, is not like the trip to Mexico I grew up going to with my youth group, um, where we're just building terrible houses and feeling like we changed the world. Um, this is actually a trip where, where we're going to learn from Jer uh, uh, Swigert, who many of you know, and his organization about what it looks like to be a peacemaker in everyday life. One of the ways you could think about what Jesus is doing in the world, the mission of God, is that he's making peace. He's reconciling all the sin-severed relationships that mark the world we live in. And so the way Jer and his organization lead these trips to try to make peacemaking disciples is by taking you to points of international conflict. So they go Israel-Palestine, but in this case, they also go to the Tijuana-San Diego border and immerse you in immigration crisis. And you learn from both peacemakers and from extremists. And you hear stories from people uh, on both sides of the fence, on both sides of the issue, and learn how to be what Jesus called would be blessed as a peacemaker. And so Jarrell's leading our high schoolers on this trip. It's a beautiful thing. I had the chance to go on the trip several months ago. And he's got several spots for adults that would like to come along as leaders and as learners. And then the second trip in Nicaragua, led by Rick Gerhardt, who's the chair of our elder board. And this is an ongoing relationship that Antioch enjoys with the Lofsguards. And we'll get to go down and be part of what they're doing to encourage them, support them, partner with them. And that trip is also happening in August. There'll be an info meeting about that next week. And so for this week, that's what you need to know. Um, in coming weeks, like I said, we'll be sharing these uh, stories of how you guys are living out the mission of Christ in your everyday life. Okay, sound good? Right, so Acts 1, I feel like I could go on and on and on about it. Um, there's so much key stuff in here that I want to pay attention to, but for our purposes this morning, I'm going to focus in um, really on one foundational aspect of this vision, um, to be a church that's joining Jesus on his mission. And I think it's a little bit of a paradigm shift from the way most of us typically think about missions, okay? And so a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the idea that central to the gospel of Jesus is an invitation to humanity to become one with him. Theological term for this miraculous, mysterious work is union. That through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we are somehow mysteriously joined together with Jesus in such a way that we are in him and he is in us that we are now one with Christ. And if you read through the letters of the New Testament, you'll see this over and over again, this language of union. In fact, Paul doesn't even use the term Christian. He simply refers to those who are in Christ. 
as if that's what it is to be Christian. Those who are so connected to Jesus that we no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in us. So this idea of union is absolutely central, literally to everything, starting with what is the gospel and what is the invitation that the gospel would extend to us as humanity, that we are invited to be made one with Christ. And what this means, just to rehash it real simply, is that my standing before God is not on a sliding scale of approval based on how well I'm performing. God's view of me today isn't based on how good I was yesterday. That would be a terrifying place to live, if you remember that clip from the way, way back. A terrifying place to live, wondering, have I been good enough for God to be happy with me? Or is he disappointed in me? No, if union with Jesus is true, then my standing with God isn't based on my record or performance, but it's based on that of Christ. That God looks at me and sees me in Jesus. That his view of me is based on the life that Christ lived. And literally, as we've said, his biography, the biography of Jesus, becomes our biography. He suffered. We suffered with him. He died. We died with him. He was buried. We've been buried with him. He rose again. We've risen with him. That's how Paul talks about what it is to be a Christian, somebody who is in Christ, who participates in the life with Christ, who's so deeply joined together with Jesus that you really can't see where he stops and where we begin. That's the good news as it relates to our standing before God. That's the vision of reconciliation or us being at peace in a right relationship with God. So if we ever wonder, for those of us who are in Christ, how does God feel about me? How, does, how much does God actually love me? The answer is, well, how does God feel about Jesus? How much does the Father actually love his Son? That's how much he loves us. That's how he feels about us as well. Our standing is secure because we are united with Christ. From there, what would follow is an invitation from Jesus to those who are in him to join him on his mission in the world. So it's not just this vertical relationship that is affected by our union with Christ. But if we are now in him and one with him, then what he's doing in the world, his mission also becomes our mission. That his work, his ministry, his life, the reconciliation, the peacemaking, the redemption that he's bringing about in the world, we are invited to join Jesus on that mission. Now, here's what's crazy about it as it relates to this passage. There's actually, I mean, I'm kind of speaking in theological terms, but there's actually within these biographical accounts the stories of how this whole thing happened. Now, it's still mysterious, but what's fascinating is that this passage that talks about the ascension of Christ, starting in verse 9, 
where Jesus bodily rises from the earth up into God's realm, into the heavens. There's a huge thing that's occurring in that moment. Now, as Protestants, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the ascension of Christ because it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. In fact, it just seems like he left. Like, that's not that hard, right? Just to take off, why would we celebrate that? In fact, I kind of wish he would have stayed. Sort of a bummer that he left, so not much to celebrate. It's huge. It's huge. And the early Christians, starting with Paul and other apostles and to the, to the early founders of the church, understand, understood the, the significance of Christ's ascension. And so I want to play on it just for a moment. We understand <clears throat> that what we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation of Jesus which we kind of tell in a cute way of a baby in a manger with barn animals around. But the reality is, is a scandalous idea. Incarnation comes from the words incarnate, in meat, in flesh. God, the creator of the universe, becomes a piece of meat. He reduces himself to something which seems really unholy. God becomes a baby. And so in the incarnation, we celebrate at Christmas that God has entered into human history. And not only that, but God has brought himself, translated himself into humanity. The ascension is the other side of that coin. So you might say it this way, that in, the incarnation, in his incarnation, God brought himself into us. In his ascension, God brought us into himself. Did I say that wrong? God brought himself into us in the incarnation. In his ascension, God brought us into himself. He didn't just take off. <laughs> he didn't just leave. There was a significant gospel work at hand in this account of Jesus, now fully human, ascending into heaven so that in God's place there is now a human being. The Son of Man. Humanity is taken with Christ into the presence and into the realm of God. So our union is actually founded in these two Christ moments. First, God brings himself into us, and then secondly, he brings us into himself. And so when Paul and other authors say that we are one with Christ, that he is in us and we are in him, it's not just an idea. This actually occurred within the history of the Bible. God has brought us into himself. So what does that mean for us? It means that today there's a man, a human being in heaven, in perfect communion with the Father. And we are in him. Today, there's a man in heaven in perfect communion with the Father. And we are in him. Do you see how if that's true, then the idea of living on mission or living missionally gets this incredible base of power and energy and life. And it feels like 
instead of stepping out of my everyday life to go kind of do missiony stuff, my very identity, my very life is wrapped up with the person of Christ so tightly that now his standing before the Father and his mission in the world is now something that I'm part of. I get to join Jesus in what he's doing in the world. Why would you not want to get on board with that? What would you rather give your life to? Or who are you going to trust your life with more than Jesus? The one who emptied himself to become to us and then glorified us in himself. There's no better king, no greater savior. And this is the God that we have. Christ is in us, we are in him, we're one with him. His record has become our record, his story has become our story, and now his mission has become our mission. So as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see the stories of the first community of people for whom this was true. That the, the followers of Jesus saw themselves, understood their union with Jesus. They understood that they weren't just trying to kind of pay it forward, so to speak, but Jesus was actually working out his purposes and his goodness and his plans in the world, and he was inviting them to let him do it through them. What we'll see is that this Holy Spirit character is pretty central to this whole thing. That there's this actual empowerment. The same spirit that empowered Jesus for his life and ministry is now given to us. I think I've used this analogy before, but when Steve Jobs died several years ago, the question was, what's going to happen to Apple? Are they going to continue to be creative and innovative and world-changing? Was Steve able to transfer his vision, his DNA, his thinking to his team and to his organization? Still remains to be seen, doesn't it? What if Steve was able to miraculously, before he died, put his spirit into every single person that worked for Apple? So they aren't just kind of left speculating WWSD, <laughs> I wonder if he would like this or I wonder if he would do that. No, Steve would be able to actually put his spirit into his team so they would have his same heartbeat and his same vision and his same mind. Steve couldn't do that. Jesus did that. And it's genius. He doesn't just give us a set of rules to follow. He gives us his very spirit so that now the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the life of Christ may become ours. And I'll close by reminding us that union with Christ isn't something that just super-duper Christians achieve. It's not like some of us work really hard and we're united with Christ. This is what it is to be Christian. This is true of you already. You are in him. He is in you. He has put his mind and his heart within you so that your deepest desires are actually his deepest desires. The things you really want are the things he really wants.
doesn't always feel that way and we're not always paying attention. But that's where this story begins. A group of ordinary people given the spirit of Jesus, called to form a community and invited to engage the world on mission with Christ. You'll hear more stories about that as we move through the series. But for now, I want to invite you to close your Bible or click off your Bible app. It's important to me that this series isn't done simply in conversation about Jesus, but it's a journey that happens in conversation with Jesus. Okay? So I'll invite you on a short little prayer journey if you're willing to go there with me. Close your eyes and imagine that as we sit here today, Jesus himself walks into this room. And he walks down the aisle to the row where you're sitting. He taps you on the shoulder. And he says, get up. Come with me. I want to show you something I'm working on. I want to show you some people in need of my life. Someone who needs my love. I want to show you a place in this world that needs my restoration, my peace, my redemption. He says, come with me. And so you get up and you follow him out of this auditorium, out of this school, and you go with him. Let me ask you this. Where did Jesus take you? Where's the place that he shows you? Who are the people that he's calling you to love and to serve? I'd like to suggest for those of us that found ourselves following Jesus somewhere in the city or in the country or around the world, that the Spirit of Christ is present within this room, within this body, within your very body. And I'd like you to assume for a moment that you're hearing from him, and that he is in fact inviting you to join his mission, not just in a general way, but to a specific place or people or issue. For others, others of us, we'll need more time to discern that. But Lord Jesus, we celebrate the fact that you have not left us alone simply with a handbook, but that you have implanted your spirit within your church, that you have called forth a community to carry on your mission in the world with you. We're thankful that the foundation of this mission isn't guilt, 
<clears throat> but it's simply gratitude that you have done everything necessary to secure our standing with God, and so we are now freed up to go and to love and to serve and to give our lives away for those in this city, in this country, and around the world that need your love and justice and freedom and healing and peace. And so we pray that this wouldn't simply be a sermon series for the next two months, but it would actually be a journey led by your spirit where your very life could take even deeper roots within us, changing our minds, changing our hearts. God, we pray against all the obstacles and barriers from our apathy to our cynicism to our wounding. God, we pray that you would heal, that you would bring reconciliation and that you would move us from a place of simply sitting to serving, to being your hands, to being your feet, to being your very body in this city and around the world. What an incredible gift that we get to be part of what you're doing in the world. Jesus, thank you so much for inviting us and entrusting us with your mission. We want to go with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.